Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning once again to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in our last week, our last sermon of a brief series that I started a couple months ago on the Lord's Prayer, taking the instruction of Jesus that he gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, an instruction also given in the Gospel of Luke, but we've been focused on Matthew's account of Jesus' words, thinking about prayer, wanting us to not only learn about or be prodded to be praying more, but to also be praying better. To be praying better. And so before we jump into this last section, what I want us to do this morning is review. And so this will be perfect for those of you who are visiting and have missed all the other sermons. I'm going to give a brief review before we even read the text this morning. Those of you who are here, remember that we began this study with an emphasis that not only do we need to pray like Jesus and learn to pray like our Lord prayed, But we need Jesus in order to pray. We need Jesus in our lives in order to pray because Jesus alone is our standing before the Father. I've said a couple times that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a family prayer. It's a prayer for the people of God, for those who know and love Jesus and have united themselves with Him. And so in Jesus' name, that phrase that we say at the end of our prayers, it's not just a throwaway phrase. It is our ticket. It is our entrance into the throne room of the Father. And so we really can't address God as our Father our Father in heaven, in the intimate, caring sense without an acceptance of the adoption that we have received through His Son and through the Gospel. What a privilege that is. And so that's where we began. Our Father in heaven. How can we pray like that? Because of Jesus. And then Jesus then taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, reminding us that the content of our prayers begins not with ourselves and our wants, our desires, not even with our needs, but with worship, with God and his glory, because there is no greater aim, there is no greater end in the universe than the glory of God. Which is why Paul said to the church, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, doesn't matter. Do everything to the glory of God. And that's partly what's wrapped up in that phrase, hallowed be your name. And then related to that phrase, Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he reminded us of of something that our natural hearts don't really like to hear. And that is, it's not about you. (laughs) It's not about me. It's about Him. It's not about your legacy. It's about the nations and His glory. It's not about your comfort. It's about your holiness and what God is doing in you and what He is working in you, how He is changing you to reflect His glory. And so we are reminded in this phrase to pray with the kingdom mindset, with the kingdom focus, Our Father in heaven, because of Jesus, hallowed be your name, all to your glory. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done above anything else in my life. 
And then Jesus invited us to marvel in the truth that we are God's personal concern. Right after having us in the heights, he, he brings us down and he says, yeah, pray for your daily bread. Pray for what you need. Because united to Christ, the sovereign one, the creator and sustainer of the universe, knows your name and he knows your needs and he has made you his personal concern. And so pray. Give us bread. Give us what we need for today. And then finally, last week, we looked at the last petition that we looked at, and it reminded us of our moral bankruptcy. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? Jesus has canceled our debt to the law, and that kind of forgiveness shown to us, we were reminded of this in the discipleship hour, that kind of forgiveness reminds us that we must be forgivers. It can't, it can't be any other way. If we truly understand the grace we've been shown, then we need to learn and strive to reflect that grace to others. And so that, that's where we've been. And that brings us to today and to the last petition that I want to look at. And so I'm going to read again for us for the last time, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Found in your bulletin, it'll be on the screen behind me. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word before we open up the Scripture. So I invite you to do that if you're willing and able. And listen as I read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5-13. through 13. Jesus says to His disciples, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Where I want to center our hearts for the next few moments on in this Lord's Prayer. But before we go there, maybe you are saying, that passage that you just read to me was not the prayer that we prayed at the beginning of the service. There's something else that's not there in that passage that you just read. What about, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For those of us who have known and loved and memorized and prayed the Lord's Prayer for many, many years, that phrase is always attended to our prayer of Jesus' words. And yet here in Matthew chapter 6 and also in Luke's account, that phrase is not found in either account. 
Well, why? Well, the reason why is because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts of those Gospels. You see, the Bibles that you have in your hand are collections of manuscripts from many different places as copies of Mark, as copies of Matthew were circulated throughout the ancient world and and then eventually were collated into the canon, the scriptures that you have before us. And the earliest manuscripts tend to be the most reliable manuscripts, right? Because they're closest to the original source. And so this last phrase that you prayed at the beginning of the service, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And so the translators have chosen not to put it in your copies of God's word. And I think that's right. And I think that's appropriate. So why do we say it? Why do we pray it? Well, I think it's also right and appropriate to pray what we pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer historically in the Christian church. Because it's believed that that last phrase, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, was added very early on in the early church as a way to tie up, as a way to respond in a way, doxologically, to what we have just prayed. Of course, we find all kinds of doxologies to the Lord throughout the scriptures, And that phrase, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, mirrors a lot of doxologies, but specifically it mirrors David's words in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what David says and prays there. He says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, and the majesty. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And he goes on and on praying this prayer. And so in the early church, this last phrase was added on as an appropriate, though not inspired, ending to the Lord's prayer. And that last phrase that we're not going to unpack, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, brings us really full circle, right? to that theological paradigm that I brought up before, the already and the not yet, right? These things are now. The kingdom has come. Jesus is the king. He is reigning and ruling. Even as we pray, these things are not yet. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that Fullness. And so, yes, thy kingdom come and thine is the kingdom. We pray those things together. So that's a little housekeeping in terms of that last phrase, but let's unpack what we want to talk about this morning. As we finish this study and as we focus on this last phrase, I remind you that with each of these petitions that we've been walking through and meditating on, we've been looking not just at what we specifically have been praying for, but also what these petitions imply, what the greater context is that Jesus wants us to know wants us to believe. Maybe he assumes that we know it. He assumes that we believe it. And so it's a reminder to us. Well, this morning's no different. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This petition, in addition to teaching us how to pray, reminds us about two things. It reminds us about the existence of evil 
And it proclaims to us grace. And those are the two pegs that I want us to kind of hang our thoughts on this morning. Two things that I want us to strive to do as we unpack this, as we go from here thinking about this. And I'm going to flip the petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're going to focus on deliver us from evil first and then go to lead us not into temptation. So two truths for those of you who love to take notes. Number one, pray against the darkness around us and in us. Pray against the darkness around us and in us. We've talked about this before in many other contexts. We have an enemy. We are at war. Life is a war. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Familiar passage for many of us in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here can be translated as some of your translations do. If you have a different English translation here this morning, they translate it, deliver us from the evil one. Powerful, evil, cunning. There is a being bent on destruction. Satan is not just a figment of our imaginations. There's more to our world, as I've often reminded us of, than flesh and bone, than science and matter. And in this simple petition, Jesus reminds us that things in our world are not neutral. You're either for Him or you're against Him. In His high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We've been looking a lot in this study about our confessions and our catechisms. If you're here this morning and visiting, you've walked into a Presbyterian and Reformed church. And so we have a heritage of documents, of confessions and catechisms that we believe are good and helpful summaries of the Scripture. And we've been looking at a few. The Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms as well as the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism in particular spends most of its commentary on the petition. I told you that both of those catechisms, the Westminster and the Heidelberg, walk through the Lord's Prayer really helpfully, unpacking each of these petitions as we've done. And the Heidelberg Catechism's answer on this petition camps out on this very point. Listen as I read it. Our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of Your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. 
I think it's so well said. Things are not often as they seem. Things are often more sinister than we imagine. This past week, there was a couple media personalities that were in the news, polarizing media personalities. And one of those media personalities was Tucker Carlson, a former cultural commentator, political commentator on Fox News. Now, I am not some Tucker Carlson fanboy. I'm not here to talk about his entire commentary on uh, our world. I think some of the things he says are helpful, uh, but not all. But I happen to be directed by someone. I don't remember exactly how I find my way there. You never know on the internet, right? How you find your way to a certain place. But I found my way to a clip of a talk that Tucker Carlson recently did for the Heritage Foundation. Now, I don't know anything about Tucker Carlson. As I said, I don't watch his show. I didn't watch his show when it was on. I know nothing about his faith, his confessed faith, or his heart, obviously. But I found his comments in this little clip to be absolutely spot on and wonderful and timely as I was studying this. He speaks about how in this current cultural discourse, What he thinks and what he encourages everyone to do in that room and those he heard is to pray. Is to pray. Because when things don't make sense, when there is no common ground, it seems, when it seems to be the end is destruction, we we pray. Now here is a active cultural and political commentator, not talking about policy, but about prayer. Now, he would be the first to tell you that's not all we do. I mean, that he's devoted his life to engaging, to debating, to trying to speak rationality into our public discourse. But I found it interesting that even he says at the bottom of it all, at the root of it all, we need to pray, deliver us. Deliver us from evil. You know, it actually doesn't begin there. The evil that is just an external, maybe we can avoid it, we can blame it. But we're also reminded, I think, in this petition of the state of our own hearts. You see, I left off the first line of the Heidelberg Catechism's answer. It begins, before it goes into what I just read to you, it begins with, by ourselves we are too weak to hold on for even a moment. Deliver us from evil. We need this because of what lies within us. Not just the world is not okay, the world is deeply flawed, but we are not okay. We are deeply flawed. We can talk about the subtle and the not-so-subtle ways that we are tempted, but that's not Jesus' point here. Here Jesus wants us to not underestimate our weakness, but to acknowledge, to recognize, to pray against the darkness around us, behind things and under things, but also inside of us. The Apostle Paul spoke to the Corinthian church about learning from the mistakes of the Old Testament people. And he concludes with this verse in chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed 
lest he fall. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So acknowledge and pray against the darkness around us and in us. That's the first thing I think we can set our hearts on this morning. But there's something else. This prayer, much different than the declaration of moral bankruptcy that we had last week, is a daily prayer of casting ourselves on the mercy and grace of the Father to whom we pray. And so the second thing I want us to strive for is to cry out for His all-sufficient grace. Cry out for His all-sufficient grace. And let me look at grace from three different angles. Sovereign grace, sustaining grace, and purifying grace. First, God's sovereign grace. What are we saying when we talk about sovereign grace? We're talking about the truth that our God is in control of all things. And so lead us not is an acknowledgement by your sovereign hand, our God. Help us to avoid temptation. Now, some of you are saying, well, what about James 1? James 1 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So then why pray this, right? How exactly can God lead us or not lead us into temptation? Well, I think when we think about temptation, we think about that word, we immediately think about enticement to evil, don't we? But the word here in the Lord's Prayer actually has a wider meaning than simply enticement to evil. We would firmly say and protect God's character in saying that God doesn't lead us to sin. God doesn't lead us to sin ever. But at times, He does lead us to testing. One of the greatest and most encouraging examples of this is our own Lord Jesus. In the beginning of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? Because a test reveals who you really are. And the Father here was determining the resolution of the Son concerning the path that He had laid out for Him. The will of the Father to walk in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what God intended for ultimate good, Satan, of course, seized upon in hopes for destruction, right? And so God let the leash out a little bit on Satan as He does with Job in the book of Job. And this is at times the way it is with us. James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we have to keep in mind God's sovereign grace. And when we pray this prayer, we are praying, God, can we please not go there? 
Can we please not go there? Maybe you pray that. I know I've prayed that at times for others who are struggling in their faith and who need to be brought back to Jesus. Lord, bring them to the end of themselves. Have mercy. Lead us not into temptation is the cry of a heart that knows that evil lurks, knows the weakness of our own defenses, and asks the Lord to protect and allow no more than we can bear. And this is not some wishful request. Now we have this assurance. Every petition of this prayer is a promise, not some pie-in-the-sky hope. God will do these things. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so we cry out for His grace, His all-sufficient grace, His sovereign grace. And that brings us to sustaining grace. The other angle of grace. Simply put, He knows you. He knows your weakness. He remembers that you are dust. Right? Hebrews 4, we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the Good Shepherd leads us through green pastures, We pray for that also through barren wastelands at time. We don't pray for that, but we trust Him when that happens, knowing that His sovereign grace is over it all, knowing that His sustaining grace will be with us. And that brings us to purifying grace, the last angle. Temptations, trials, and tests, not simply things that God oversees, but they are the means that He makes us into what He wants us to be. That's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse or a motivation to pursue temptation. No. We pray that we would be kept far from it. It's a recognition that God is building our spiritual muscles. And whatever we're experiencing, and whatever we're going through. I need not remind you that the Bible is littered with failures of God's servants. Noah's drunkenness, Abraham's lies, David's adultery, all failures. But failures that God used for His sovereign purpose that eventually became trophies of His grace doesn't excuse their sin, doesn't lessen our fervor to pray this prayer, but it does point us back to grace. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Recognize that evil lurks around, but God's grace is greater than he that is in the world. It's good news. I hope you have found this entire study 
these past several weeks on the Lord's Prayer, good news. News and encouragement that would help us to pray more frequently, to pray more fervently, and to pray more focused on the glory of God in all things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this instruction that we have set our hearts on for the past several weeks. Being reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples and to us, words that Jesus himself lived out perfectly before the Father. Lord God, we want to be holy as you are holy. We know we can't be perfect like Jesus, but we want to strive to keep these things before us as we cry out in dependence daily upon You. And so Father, I pray once again this morning that by Your Spirit and by this Word that is living and active, that You would plant it deep in the lives of Your people here, challenging them, encouraging them in the ways that they need to be challenged and encouraged. And I pray for us as a church that we would continue to grow in grace and to grow in prayer, to grow in kingdom-focused prayer, to grow in discernment, to see what is really beyond and behind the things in our world, but all the while trusting in Your grace, in Your sovereignty, in Your goodness. Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.